Welcome to the Portage County Safety Council podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's safety chat. Hi, this is Nick Coya with the Portage County Safety Council, and we are at the Northeast Ohio Safety Expo up in the Youngstown area, talking with some of the safety presenters today and learning more about safety and options that are out there for you. This morning, we're joined by Glenn, who will be talking about confined spaces today. Welcome, Glenn. Good morning, Nick. Hey, Glenn, can you uh, tell our listeners a little bit about what you do at the Ohio Bureau of Workers' Compensation and how you got into confined space? Well, I am the director of the Public Employment Risk Reduction Program, which is the program within BWC that enforces the federal OSHA regulations for state and local government agencies. And through that, I became very interested in confined space. I also serve on the National Fire Protection Association Technical Committee for Confined Space Safe Work Practices, which uh, develops NFPA 350, which is a guide for work in and around confined spaces. And I'm the task group chair for the ventilation chapter of that document. So you have just a little bit of experience in confined space. A little bit. All right. So for our listeners who are maybe have not worked around this or a little confused by confined spaces, let's start with what is a confined space? Well, confined space uh, from the OSHA perspective and actually from the NFPA document has three components to it. It's large enough that if someone decided they wanted to go into the space, they could get into the space. But the configuration is such that there's a limited means of getting in and out of the space or a limited means of egress. And then the space itself is not really designed for continuous humans to occupy it. And that really means that the purpose of the space is something other than for people to be in it. So it's something that houses um, wastewater or grain or some other something else that uh, really isn't uh, intended for people to be in there alongside that other material. So if we took a, a wastewater uh, tank, uh, while it's uh, if we emptied it out, we could put a desk in there. It really wasn't designed for that desk to sit there. No, and actually that's a really good example. I was in an air handler one day, which is an HVAC system, and I was walking through this air handler, which was a very large one for a very large building, and we turned around a corner in there and we found an easy chair. And I'm like, clearly this is someplace for somebody to come and disappear for a while <laughs> in the confined space. So, no, that's not really what we're talking about. Just because you can put a chair in there doesn't mean it's not a confined space. I think that the other piece that confuses individuals is what does a permit require confined space? Because there is a difference there between that confined space and a permit, which changes the game. Right. In a permit space, the, the basic difference is it has all of those elements that I talked about earlier about a confined space. But in addition to those configurations, components, there's a hazard present. So while you're in there doing whatever work you're doing, there's a significant hazard that could either immediately kill you or it could present a risk that it would entrap you or some other sort of, of, of risk factor that would prevent you from self-rescuing from the space if you came in contact with that hazard. So if I have a confined space and my maintenance team needs to go in and do some work, what do I need to do when they're working just in a confined space? Not a permit required, just a regular confined space. Well, a regular confined space, the first step that you have to take is what exactly are they doing? Because you mentioned you're going to send maintenance people into this confined space. And in addition to those hazards that I talked about that could be present in the space because of something that's stored in there, those individuals could be bringing a hazard with them into the space. So let's say that you're sending your maintenance people in there and they have to do welding. And that welding is going to generate smoke. 
It's going to generate some vapors, some gases, some fume, and all of that, because it's in a confined space, could become trapped in that space. So the exposure for the employees is going to increase because there isn't a natural source of ventilation that's going to dilute that those components from the uh, welding. So at that point, it would become a permit-required confined space because of the hazard. That's right. We've introduced a hazard now, and now it goes from just being a confined space to a permit space. Now, on the other side of that, though, is if they were just going into a meter vault and they wanted to read some meters or they wanted to make some fine adjustments with the screwdriver and it's a confined space, not much change to the work process? No, that's not necessarily true. Um, okay. the, because a meter or a valve pick, because they're very similar, is just a hole in the ground that may house uh, um, valves or it could house a meter that has to be read frequently or it could have a valve that has to be opened or closed periodically. The problem is because it's underground, and depending upon where it's located, there could be some unknown hazards. Let's say that that valve pit or that meter pit, the last time they were in there was a month ago. You really don't have any way of knowing what may have happened during that month when you were not there. The most likely thing that can happen is once space is closed up and it's underground, there's a tendency for the oxygen that's in there to be depleted. So you could end up with an oxygen-deficient atmosphere. So at the bare minimum in a space like that, you need to test for the atmosphere to make sure there's sufficient oxygen and that any other toxic or flammable components haven't seeped into the space. So if we do find those toxic components or we're welding in there um, or we know that there's grain or liquid flowing into the spot, we know it's permit required, what does that mean for the workers going into that space? Well, it just means that they have to do whatever they need to do in order to put a barrier or to remove that hazard while they're doing the work. So that could be a variety of things. Talking about the atmospheric hazards that I mentioned earlier, we would ask that they put in a continuous forced air ventilation that directs fresh air from the outside all the way down to where the workers are going to be. If it's something that could engulf them, let's say they're going into a, a space that normally houses a flowable material, could be water, could be grain, could be um, cement that's dry. All of those things have to be checked um, to make sure that they cannot flow into the space. So by checking, I mean that they um, close valves, they put the blank and bleed valves, they do whatever they need to do in order to prevent that material from coming back into the space while they're working there. Would they need a permit to be in that confined space once they blank and uh, bleed those lines off? Well, there are there are actually are three different ways that you can go into a permit-required confined space. The first is what we call a full permit entry. And for a full permit entry, what's required, or when that's required, I should say, is when you have an atmospheric hazard and you have some other hazard. So you have two hazards simultaneously in the space that have to be controlled. Whenever that happens, you have to use a permit. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. The OSHA standard actually has two other provisions in it if you only have one or the other. And if you only have atmospheric hazards, then the expectation is that you provide that forced air ventilation and that you test to make sure that the ventilation is taking care of the atmospheric hazard. And if that's the case, then you can enter at will. The meter pit and the valve pit are perfect examples of that. And actually, one person in a truck can go out and do that work because through historical data, you've shown that that forced air ventilation actually can control the hazard while they're in there. The other type of entry that doesn't require a permit is a process that OSHA calls reclassification. And the space is a permit space, okay. but what you're doing is... 
first of all, you do not have an atmospheric hazard. So you're controlling this other hazard, and it's a physical hazard, typically, obviously, since it's not an atmospheric hazard. And you're controlling it through things like lockout, tagout, through blanking and bleeding, through other things that are going to, again, eliminate the material from being in the space and also from re-entering the space while you're in there. So you go through this process where you verify that the space has actually had the hazards removed. You know, I come from the wastewater industry prior to getting into safety consulting, and that was always the, the argument from the employees in the field was, well, we can blank it off. But coming from wastewater, we were always dealing with hydrogen sulfide, so you always had an atmospheric hazard. So no matter what it was that required permit. Right. Whenever you have both, you have an atmospheric hazard that's either a potential hazard or an actual hazard, then you have to take care of it before you go into the space, in addition to those wastewater components that had to be controlled. Correct. Now, the other piece that you did mention when I when you were talking about these different options is that we have to be able to self-rescue. And, and rescue always becomes a gray area for individuals. Can you talk a little bit about what rescue options are and what the employer um, should have in place? Well, I can tell you one thing it's not, and that's call 911. It doesn't work. Um, I would say that the majority of fire departments in the state of Ohio, although they may be well-intentioned if you called them, they do not have the training, the equipment, or the tools in order to effect a confined space rescue. Right. And it requires a technical rescue team that has been specifically trained in those skills. And it is unfortunate, but the majority of departments don't have that. And if we looked statewide in Ohio, there are only a couple dozen departments throughout the entire state that really have the full capabilities to do a confined space rescue. We have some counties here in Ohio where there isn't a confined space rescue team in the entire county. Yeah. And at the county level, I knew I dealt with this from where I came from. It was a county confined space rescue, which meant you needed to wait for rescue operations from multiple fire departments to drive to a central location and then come to your location. That response time could be 20, 30, 40, 60 minutes. Yeah. And a lot of times those county operations are just that. They're a combined team that that incorporates uh, members from multiple agencies. So through mutual aid, they come together and they decide, hey, here's how we're going to do it. And they may have more than one trailer, but in some cases they only have one trailer for the entire county that has their equipment in it. So if we can't rely on 911, can we rely on having non-entry rescue as an option? We hook a person up to a lifeline um, with, a, with, with a winch to be able to pull them back out. That's actually the preferred method. So anytime, if you're going into a, a confined space that has a vertical entry, there's a requirement that when, you do, when you're doing a vertical entry, if it's greater than five feet, that someone have a harness and lifeline on, or you have the ability to attach them to a harness and lifeline. There are some spaces where wearing a lifeline for the duration of the entry actually increases the hazard. But they need to have the harness on so that if something happens, a rescuer can go down and attach a lifeline to them. For example, if they had to cross over pipes or under pipes or through baffles or something else that's an obstruction, that if they started cranking them out using the winch and they were getting caught on that, that could increase the hazard to the, the entrant that is already having a problem. So if I'm going to do self-rescue or if I'm going to do non-entry rescue as, as my rescue plan, but they enter and they have to disconnect because of those baffles, now do I need to have a rescue team on site that can actually make that entry? That is the preferred method because you're going to have to figure out what they're doing. And kind of back up a little bit, one of the requirements of the permit required confined space standard is that the employer that is sending people in 
contact the rescue services to verify that they're available. And I would kind of leave it up to the rescue service. Say, we're going in today. This is the situation. We really would like to have you here. Can you send a team here? The OSHA standard doesn't technically require that team to be there side by, you know, right at the site. But that would be a best practice to have that happen. So if I'm a small organization and I do this once a year, calling on a rescue team would be best option. But if I work for an organization and we're doing confined space entry on a weekly basis, is there an option for me to develop my own in-house rescue team? Absolutely. That's actually a very good option, particularly, again, because we have so few areas in the state that actually have a technical rescue team. Employers can uh, develop their own in-house rescue team. As long as they've got the training, they've got the equipment, they have the capabilities to do those entry rescues, that's something that's certainly acceptable. So looking at uh, confined spaces and permits, what is the most common mistake you see in the field? Well, the biggest mistake that I see is a failure to identify the space and the hazards in a space. That's the first step really in a confined space program is having essentially an inventory of confined spaces. And that's the biggest mistake because many, many people do not recognize that the space that they're going to is either a confined space or it's a permit space. And failure to do that really starts the ball rolling in the wrong direction. You know, it's quick if you're a, if you're a bowler, it's quick for that ball to go right straight in the gutter at that point. So really, you know, the best piece of advice from this that individuals could take is go back to your workplace and do an assessment. Just walk around and identify those confined spaces based upon that definition and then determine if it's permit required and start to build the program from there. That's at least going to get it moving in the right direction. It will. Real. All right. Well, thank you so much, Glenn. We know we have a class for you to take off to and present at. Best of luck on that today and everyone be safe. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. For more episodes, check us out on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Podbeam, or Stitcher. To get new episodes sent directly to your phone or smart device, be sure to subscribe. To learn more about how your company can earn up to a 4% Ohio BWC premium rebate by becoming an active member of the Portage County Safety Council, please visit our website at www.portagecountysafetycouncil.wordpress.com. The preceding information is for entertainment purposes only. Views expressed may not reflect the views of any affiliated or sponsoring individuals or organizations. Listeners should carefully weigh information provided and seek advice from an appropriate professional before implementing. Listener discretion is advised.